At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out the Word of God and turn in it to the book of Esther, which is in the Old Testament. And if you sort of just grab your whole Testament section in your Bible and you come to the middle part of that, you will be pretty close to the book of Esther. Now, I can just say this has been true in my own life, and no doubt it's also been true in your life. It's certainly true that even though we know God and we have walked with God for years, there are times in our life when we feel like God is invisible. And that is especially true when we are facing deeply difficult times. Maybe it's been a a frightening diagnosis that has come our way that includes that terrible word, cancer. I've been there more than once. Maybe our spouse has been taken. Maybe we have lost a child. Maybe there has been pain and heartache in our life. Maybe we've been a victim of severe mistreatment. Maybe it's just that we feel like right now everything seems to be going against me. And when those things happen in our life, we will often feel confused and disoriented. Isn't that true? And if we were really going to be honest, we would admit that at times we feel like what's happening to me seems random. It seems pointless. And at times we even begin to doubt God's love. And so when we're facing those kinds of eras in our life, we need to remember and we need to embrace the truth of God's providence. Because when we embrace that, it breeds in our inner being trust and peace and assurance, assurance that God is still in control, that God has a reason for this, that God has a plan. A few weeks ago, we began a series of messages I have entitled Providence, Insights from the Book of Esther. And as we've been going through this series, I have been sharing a number of definitions of providence from various theologians. I want to share one this morning from Lewis Sperry Chafer, who was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary. He said this, providence is the execution in all its details of the divine program of the ages. As we've been talking about providence, we have said that providence is God who is behind the scene, S-E-E-N. And we have been saying that providence is his superintendence of all that happens in life. All that happens remains within God's control and divine purpose. And we've been also using as a guide in our study of Esther, that delicious verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, when it says, what happened to them in the Old Testament, which would include Esther, happened as examples for us and was written for our instruction. So there's things that God wants us to learn by going backward in time to the book of Esther. I've titled today's message, Down and Dirty. It deals with chapter three and chapter four of Esther. Here's the outline that I have for this section we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at Haman's clash with Mordecai in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Then we're going to look at Haman's vicious plot in chapter 3, verses 6 to 15. We're going to look at the crushing prospect of the plot 
in the first four verses of chapter 4. And then we're going to see Esther and Mordecai having this emotional dialogue back and forth in chapter 4, 5 to verse 17. And it comes in four different rounds, this little dialogue they have back and forth. So that's where we're going to go. Let's get started. Let's look at Haman's clash with Mordecai in verses 1 to 5. Now, remember, we haven't yet fully been introduced to him, but Haman is snidely whiplash in this melodrama. He is the villain. And what happens to him in chapter 3 and verse 1 is he is promoted by the king. He is advanced, and he is given authority over all the princes of the country. In other words, Haman becomes the chief administrator, or in other terms, he becomes the prime minister of the kingdom. Now, why does that happen? Well, we're not given a reason for it. We do know by studying Haman, we're going to see some of this today, Haman was a very smooth operator, Haman was a manipulator, and Haman was extremely wealthy. And so we just have to surmise somehow using all those snidely whiplash attributes, he gets appointed as the prime minister of the country. But as we note that in verse 1, there are some words in verse 1 that are very easy to skip over. Some words in verse 1 that at a glance appear to be completely insignificant, almost throwaway words, but they're, they're not actually Notice it says in verse 1, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, here comes those words, the son of Hamidatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority. The Agagite, that's who Haman was. Now, we know in the kingdom of Media, there was an area called Agag. And so it's possible that all this was saying is he came from that particular area. But I don't really think that's the best way to understand this. In fact, what is interesting is, when, as individuals are introduced to us in this book, there are only two people who get genealogies thrown out. You might remember from over in chapter 2, the first one is Mordecai. And Mordecai, we learn, was a Benjamite, one of the tribes of Israel. He was an Israelite. And now we have the introduction of Haman, And Haman is an Agagite, which would mean that he was an Amalekite. And that becomes highly significant. Because you see, there was this ongoing ancient feud that had been going on for 900 years between the Israelites and the Amalekites. It all goes back to the time of the Exodus. You remember when the Jews were coming out of Egypt and they were wandering in the wilderness... And we learn from Deuteronomy 25, verse 17, that the Amalekites attacked the Jews when they had just come out of Egypt. But they didn't just attack them, they attacked them from the rear. They attacked those who were at the rear of the group, the stragglers, the sick, the old women, and the children. And so that really offended not only the Jews, but it offended God. And we learn in 1 Samuel chapter 15 that God ordered King Saul to wipe out the Amalekites, get rid of all of them. And King Saul, 
in his military does rout the Amalekites, but he doesn't get rid of all of them. In fact, their king, whose name was, listen to this, Agag, he kept alive. Saul is confronted by Samuel on the part of the Lord, and Agag is later killed by Samuel. But this animosity that existed, you know, you're going to attack all of our weak and our sickly and our old, and then, okay, now God says, I'm going to wipe all of you out for the way that you are. And years later on, in 1 Samuel chapter 30, you have King David and his men, and guess what? They get raided by the Amalekites. Back and forth, back and forth they go. And these people groups remained in conflict over time. Now, some commentators would say, well, it's kind of unlikely that you could really take Haman and identify him as being in the line of the Amalekites. But to me, it seems pretty clear there's only two genealogies discussed. And you have the Israelite and you have the Agagites or the Amalekites, and they are displaying deep, deep feelings towards one another even at this time. Some of us have suggested that the term Agagite is a slang term for someone who is anti-Jew and anti-Semite. So with all that in mind, look at verse 2. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. But the end of the verse says, but Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Now, when it's talking about bowing down to someone here, it's not talking about necessarily worshiping them. The idea was to show honor to him. And so when the prime minister came by, most people were bowing down. Mordecai said, not going to do it. To me, it's very clear that Mordecai knew who Haman was, and he knew what Haman stood for. It'd be very much like a, a German Jew in the 1940s. If an SS officer walked into the room and everyone said, we should stand and honor him, they would go, I don't want to do that. Not for that guy. And we learn in verse 4 that some of the people around Mordecai were concerned about him. And so every, every day they were saying, really, are you going to do this? Are you not going to bow down before Haman and show him honor? And ultimately he led on to them that he was a Jew. Well, how does Haman respond to all this? In verse 5, it says that Haman, when he saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. Same exact terminology used in chapter 1 when the king was enraged that Queen Vashti wouldn't come to the party. And just as we saw in chapter 1, rather than just, well, she didn't come, so I'm going to be enraged, there was more to the story. As we saw, there was a lot of dysfunction going on in the palace. And the same thing is true here. You know, the rage, because one guy wouldn't bow down to you. There's just more to the story. Do you see what's working here? And Haman is seething with rage, not just about Haman, but about the Jews, which leads us to Haman's vicious plot in chapter 3, verses 6 to 15. Look at verse 6. Haman disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. He didn't know before that. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. 
He had an incredible hatred for the Jews, and we learn actually later on in the book, he wasn't alone, because in chapter 9, verse 16, it says there were 75,000 people in the kingdom who hated the Jews. Not everyone, but a large group. And so Haman finds out what's going on with Mordecai, and he sees here, whoa, 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 this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I can do something I've always fantasized about. I can get rid of all the Jews. I can wipe all of them out. Now, Satan was ultimately behind this. But Haman goes, this is my golden, golden opportunity. By the way, when you look at at Haman, he is a personification of what is described in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19. It says there, there are six things that the Lord hates. Yes, there are seven that are an abomination to him. And as you go through these seven things, all of them are practiced by Haman. Seven things which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, that's being highly proud. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness, this would be more in a a governmental fashion, who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Seven things God hates, all personified by snidely whiplash Haman himself. Now, in verse 7 of chapter 3, something unusual happens to us in our culture. But in the first year of a month, what they would do, or the first month of the year, uh, what they would do in that culture is they would annually cast lots. They were maybe marked uh, stones or sticks or clay cubes. And what they would be doing is they would be consulting their astrological gods and basically saying, there are some events that need to happen this year. Which day is the best day for that to happen? So they would have a whole series of events. But Haman's directly involved because he wants to know what is the ideal day to exterminate all of the Jews. Now this happens in the first month. In God's providence, the lots reveal that it would be in the 12th month, the month of Adar, in which would be the best. This is what the astrological gods were communicating. But God's providence said it's going to be the 12th month. In other words, 11 months from now, which gives an opportunity for the Jews to have a response to all of this. Now in verse 8, he goes before the king. Now remember, Haman is a manipulator. Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, as he's known with his Greek name, is very influenceable. He was just that kind of guy. What people would tell him is what he would often just do. And in verse 8, he goes before the king, and I want you to notice there's going to be no mention of Mordecai. There's no mention of Haman's personal affront by Mordecai. There is no mention of a personal vendetta against the Jews. None of that comes up. In verse 8, here's what he says. He says there... Uh, King, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. There's just certain people. He's trying to slide by. He doesn't want to say that it's the Jews that he's talking about. And why is it he wants to avoid that? 
Well, probably one reason why is that Cyrus and Darius, who were Ahasuerus' immediate predecessors in the kingdom, were both very favorable and kind to the Jews. Remember, they were the ones who helped the Jews go back into their land. And so he doesn't want, he doesn't want to counter you know, his predecessors at all, so he's just, it's just a certain people. And these people have laws that are different than our laws. That was a true statement. But he said, they do not observe the king's laws. And that was really an untrue statement because God had been very clear in Jeremiah 29, 7. He said to those who would be exiled, I want you to be good citizens when you go to these various lands. But here's what he's implying to the king. He says, these these people, these certain people that are out there and they're everywhere in all these different provinces, they're troublemakers. They're an insidious threat to you, king. And here's what I think we need to do. Verse 9, we need to levy a decree to destroy them. And remember, we're going to see this play out. When you would make a law and a decree in the Medo-Persian Empire, it could never be revoked. He says, here's what we need to do. We need to have a decree to destroy them. And in order to kind of convince you of how wise I really think this is, king, what I'm going to do, this is verse 9, I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the royal treasury. Now, the treasury, the royal treasury was somewhat depleted at this time uh, due to the failed invasion of Greece. Remember that from last time. He says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you 10,000 talents of silver if we can go ahead and do this decree. Now, now, when we hear that term, 10,000 talents of silver, what does that mean to us in our culture? I mean, what is that? A talent weighed 75 pounds or 35 kilograms. So if you take and multiply all this out, 75 pounds of one talent of silver and multiply it times 10,000, it comes out to a figure in our dollars in our day of something like $200 million. Now, Haman was a wealthy guy. He, he was somewhat like an NBA or NFL team owner. You want a contract for $90 million? Sure, I'll write that out for you. Plenty of money there. And he says, I will give 10,000 talents. Sounds good to Ahasuerus, easily influenceable. So verse 10, he hands his signet ring to Haman, which was giving the king's full authority. You could seal any document with that, basically giving him carte blanche. It's interesting how this is repeated again in verse 10. It said the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman. Who's Haman? The son of Hamadatha the Agag, not the Agagite. So we see again, it's just emphasizing this little thing that's working between the Amalekites and the Israelites. When you look at verse 7, it almost sounds in some versions like Azaharis. Ahasuerus turns aside the money. He said, I don't really want the money. But that verse can be translated where the king is saying back to Haman, the silver is yours. In other words, hey, it's your money, dude. If you want to spend it that way, that's fine. We know from chapter 4 and verse 7, he clearly made a promise to the king to pay this amount of money to the royal treasury. Now, pause for just a moment. Do you see the irony in all of this, especially from the king's perspective? The one who had single-handedly saved the life of the king, who was Mordecai, remember, who heard about the murder plot and then told it to Esther, and Esther related to the king, and then it was investigated, and those guys were executed. 
The one who single-handedly saved the life of the king is now being condemned to be executed along with all of the Jews. Now, in verses 12 to 15 of the chapter, the word has to go out. Remember, they have all these provinces that are out there. And remember, they used basically a Pony Express to do that. You know, the Pony Express in America is an interesting thing. They would actually run mail from St. Louis to San Francisco, 2,100 miles. And the Pony Express that we had only actually, this is kind of interesting fact, only lasted a year and a half in the United States, from 1860 to 1861. Very interesting. I found out not too many years ago that I actually had a relative who was a Pony Express rider. Well, that's the way that they get the word out. And this decision, this law that is written, is written on the 13th day of that first month. The very next day, after this death notice is signed, would have been the first day of the Passover where God delivered Israel from Egypt. Almost a little hint here of what God's getting ready to do. Well, verse 15 says, when this thing goes out and the word starts to get out, that the city of Susa, the capital city, was in confusion. Why is that? Because to many of the regular people, the Jews were good citizens. Like, why are we going to kill all these people? I don't understand. Which leads us then to this crushing prospect of the plot in the first four verses of chapter 4. Verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, how does he respond? He tore his clothes. Now remember, people in that day were very different from us. We often will have a number of clothes items in our closet. Well, most people weren't like that. They would have one set of clothes for everyday use and one set of clothes for dress use. And he hears this and he rips his clothes apart. What does that really signify? It's a way of just saying, this tears me up. It's a way of expressing deep grief. And then he puts on sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth was a very coarse cloak, and he would throw ashes on himself. And then he began to wail loudly. Now, that sounds to Americans to be an odd thing because mostly in our culture we don't do that. But that's a Middle Eastern way of expressing incredible grief. You would usually wail loudly at a death. And this is anticipating death. Not only does he respond that way, but there's great mourning, verse 3, among the Jews. And they begin to fast and weep and to wail, expressing their deep grief in face of this grave threat that's coming upon them. Now what's interesting, with all that crushing reaction, we find out that Esther hadn't heard about this yet. Which leads us to Esther and Mordecai's emotional dialogue in verses 5 to 17. Round one of that dialogue occurs in verses 5 to 9. Now, as we look at this, just remember what we've been pointing out previously. The queen was sequestered in the royal area. She was protected there. There's no cell phones. There's no texting. There's no email. And since she's off sequestered, You can't just walk in and talk to her. Remember, we had talked about the protection, didn't want men coming around the queen. And so she finds out what's happening. The word comes to her about what Mordecai is doing. She doesn't know what's going on. 
So in verses five and six, she takes one of these eunuchs, one of these men who'd had sexual surgery or guarding her, whose name was Hathak, and says, go find out from Mordecai what in the world is going on. And so he goes to Mordecai, who's in the city square, and Mordecai tells Hathak all that happened to him, the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. And he also gave to Hathak a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for their destruction. This again tells us a little more. Remember we talked about Mordecai being a city official or a lower court judge. There were no copy machines. He got an opportunity to get a hold of one of these copies of the edict And he goes, take this back, show Esther, inform her, and order her to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. Remember, before this, Mordecai had said, keep it quiet that you're a Jew. And knowing part of the atmosphere of the kingdom towards the Jews, you can understand it. But now he's saying to her, Esther, It's time to go public. It's time to let them know that you are a Jew. Round two of the conversation occurs in verses 10 to 12. Basically, in verse 11, she says, Wow, wait wait, wait a second here, Mordecai. (laughs) If I approach the king uninvited, I could be executed for that because that's the way that they set it up. You know, a king was really king. And he could set it up. If anybody tried to interrupt him when he didn't want to be interrupted, he could have them executed. And she says, I could be killed by trying to go in and talk to him when I haven't been invited to do that. And she adds, and I haven't seen him for 30 days. Apparently the king had cooled a little on Esther and had been a whole month and she hadn't even talked to him. And as you look at Esther at this point, it seems like she doesn't have any grasp on the providence of God. But the truth of the matter was that she was where she was by the goodness and grace of God. By the way, there's a good principle, I think, here for all of us, and that is that the position that we have in life, the blessings that we have in life, the opportunities we have in life, they're not just for me to enjoy. The design in God giving position and blessings and opportunity is that we might utilize them to help and minister to others. Well, round three of the conversation occurs in verses 13 and 14. Then Mordecai, verse 13, says, well, send this back to Esther. Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from some other place, and you and your father's house will perish And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. You remember that Mordecai is her stepfather. And this is a father calling his daughter up. And he says, wait a minute, don't forget your head's on the chopping block too. And then he makes this interesting statement in verse 14. Even though there's not a lot of talk about God openly, he says, if you don't do it, Esther, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from some other place. That's an expression of a belief in the providence of God and that he would honor God's 
promises to the Jews. Remember, he said, I will preserve you. And that's the line through which the Messiah would come. And he adds, who knows? I mean, who knows whether your ascendancy is just a mark of God's providence. You know, I don't know if you think about this from time to time. I think about these things and ponder them in my head. God works through people. I mean, think about that. That's a startling truth, isn't it? I mean, look at me and look at you. God works through people. And what that means is that the job we have, the resources we've been given, the intelligence we've been given, the education we have, the health that we have, the gifts and abilities we have, they're not for ourselves. But they are to help us to point people to Christ, to train others spiritually, to reach people with a message of salvation and to help meet needs. That's why we have all of those things. Well, round number four is in verses 15 to 17 of this little dialogue that occurs, and there's a shift here because Esther steps up. She moves from hesitation to determination, and she sends back to Mordecai now a directive from the queen. And in verse 16, she says, here's what I want you to go do. I want you to assemble all the Jews in the city of Susa and tell everyone to fast, and I will go into the king, and if I perish... I perish. I think this is a real statement on her part after this shift of courage. I'm going to step out in faith. I'm going to do what's right, even if it is risky. And right, when we seek to follow Christ, there's often unknowns and uncertainties out there. Now, I want to just pause for a moment. Can you feel some of this? Think about your own family and your own friends And you've been told the date of your death, 11 months from now. And everybody that you know is going to be wiped out. How would you feel? You'd be thinking, this is so unfair. Is God still in control of this thing? Can God have a plan in the face of all of this? Of course, the answer is, Yes, because we have a providential flip that is coming in chapters 5, 6, and 7. We'll be looking at that next time. But as we close today, I want to do a little bit of of life reflection. I want to just pull back for a moment. Remember, we've been saying that providence is his superintendence of all that happens in life. All that happens remains within God's control and divine purpose. But the thing about providence is that it's often mysterious, It's a little bit like the wind. You know, you can't really see the wind or touch the wind, but at times we're able to glimpse the effects of it. And when life happens and we find ourselves in that situation where we're confused and we're disoriented and and, and it just feels random, we're, we're thinking, where is God? Why is God allowing this in my life? And yet the truth is that providence is always at work. And even when it's disorienting to us, God desires that we would recognize his providence, that we would rest in his providence, and we would trust him in the midst of that providence. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading a story from the 1920s. It's about two couples, David and Sevilla Flood, and another couple by the name of the Ericsons, and both of them left their homes and went to a remote area of Africa as missionaries. 
And as the floods and the Ericsons were there, initially they were prohibited from entering the village by the chief. But the floods developed a friendship with a young African boy. And Sevilla actually led that boy to trust in Christ. A number of weeks later, um, there was an epidemic of malaria that hit the area, and the Erickson couple retreated to the central mission state station while the floods stayed there. Sevilla gave birth to a daughter, but tragically, Sevilla died a few days later. David Flood, her disillusioned husband, said, you know what, I'm just going to bury my wife here. And he had a baby daughter, Ina, and he handed Ina over to the Ericsons. You take care of this baby. And he went back to his native Sweden embittered. Why did God allow this? I was being a missionary. My wife has died. What good can come from that? It seemed very pointless and tragic to him. What's also interesting is that within, within a year, the Ericsons both died. And so baby Ina was without a family. And Ina was brought to the United States and adopted and had her name changed to Aggie. Now many years passed and Aggie grew up. And one particular day, Aggie came across a Swedish Christian magazine that told the story about Africa. And as she was glancing through this magazine, she saw a picture of a grave, and the name on the grave was the name of her birth mother, Sevea Flood. And the story went on to tell that many years ago, a white baby was born to missionaries. The young mother died, but before she died, she led an African boy to Christ. That African boy grew up and started a school in the village, And while having that school, led many of the students of the school to Christ. And many of those students in the school who had trusted Christ led their parents to trust in Christ. And eventually, the chief himself trusted Christ. And as she's reading this, baby Ina Flood, who is now Aggie Hurst, said, you know what? I got to go to Sweden and talk to my elderly birth father, David Flood. And so she journeyed to Sweden, and she sat him down, who is now elderly, and she told him about the article, and she said to him this, you and mom serve the Lord in Africa, and I want you to know that today there are 600 Africans serving Christ. And David, her birth father, was just stunned. And even though he'd spent much of his life embittered towards God, his heart was suddenly softened as he had a glimpse plan and providence of God. A few weeks later, David died. Many years later, Aggie met that particular African boy who was a man who by then had become superintendent of a national denomination in Zaire that included 110,000 believers. See, men and women, what was mysterious, what was confusing, what was heartbreaking and seemingly pointless was all within the providential plan of God. Now, they got a glimpse into the providence of God that maybe we don't always get. We don't always know in this life the full why. Randy Alcorn, in his book, If God is Good, shares this story. He says, a friend experienced terrible childhood abuse, date rape, adultery, 
two divorces, and a life that she described as 43 years of hell. Yet now in her 50s, she has experienced a deep sense of God's goodness and has a faith that one day she'll understand what eludes her now. And she wrote these words. I think in eternity, I will be able to see how God comforted me during those times when I didn't know it. That God was ever present, weeping with me, angry at those who were victimizing me, working to move me forward toward life instead of death, as Satan wished. I will see how God used it, how God transformed each thing. I see much of that transformation even now. See, this friend of Randy Alcorn had experiences in her life that tore her up. And yet her confidence was deepening in the providence of God. And that all that happens remains within God's control and divine purpose. What he wants us to do is to recognize it, to rest in it, and trust him in the midst of it. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you again for this living book. I get so excited even touching it because it teaches us such practical information. We thank you for the lessons we're learning about your providence. May we recognize it. May we rest in it. May we trust you in the midst of it, even when we don't really understand what's happening. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 